Well, as you find your seats, you'll see that we come this week to Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine. Just keep in mind where we're at. We're in the beginning, perhaps the first half of the 18th century, and in particular, we're in Scotland. Now, before we come to the lesson, let me just say a few things very briefly. First, both of these men, and as we're going to see, they were brothers, five years separated. These two men were greatly influenced by Thomas Boston. Uh, we'll see that here in a moment. But uh, they're basically his younger disciples. And also keep in mind that they with him are called the Merrow Men, as they were in that controversy we saw a couple of weeks ago called the Merrow Controversy. And so as I said last week, that Thomas Boston is perhaps my favorite all-time theologian slash preacher, the Erskines would come into a second, close second, third, just because they basically are Thomas Boston in terms of their theology. Again, they're Merriman. So they, all the emphasis of Boston in his rich covenantalism, his free offer of the gospel, his beautiful distinction of law and grace, all of that that you find in Boston, you find in them. Furthermore, just as we saw last week in Boston, you find, in my opinion, the epitome of theologian pastor. Well, you're going to get the same in the Erskines. So in, we're going to spend a few minutes towards the end. Well, hopefully a little bit more than a few minutes about the last quarter of our time or so looking at some of their sermons. And you're going to see that, like Boston, high, precise, orthodox theology put in pastoral, practical ways. So if there was ever a pastor, theologian, it was Boston and his younger disciples, the Erskine brothers. Secondly, remember their ministries started with the Merrill controversy or just prior to it. But early on, the Merrill controversy was was there in their ministries and their ministries end just after the first great awakening. So this helps just kind of just put us in the context of their ministries. So their ministries were characterized by controversy, one because of the Merrill controversy and others will see, but then the, but the, the first great awakening, awakening brought with it controversy. And we'll see today in particular their relationship with George Whitfield, the English Anglican. But nevertheless, so they start with some type of controversy and they end with it. Um, and then thirdly, their works, thankfully, have rather recently been reprinted. The only problem, though, is, is that people wanted them for so long, and they were so some of the rarest books to find. In fact, Ralph Erskine's six volumes of sermons was probably the most difficult set to get and coveted set. But it was reprinted uh, some time ago, but it's already very difficult to find. The, uh, you can, I think you can get it off the website of the Little Presbyterian publishing company that reprinted it. I checked this morning, but they're very strong Sabbatarians, and so they wouldn't even let you look at the website. It just said, it's the Sabbath, go to church, which <laughs> I felt like it's, that's true. I kind of wish they'd at least let me look and see if they're still selling the set. I have to check tomorrow and see. 
But uh, I don't know how much it is, the six volumes of, of, of sermons and, and his brother, his older brother, Ebenezer's three volumes. Uh, I, I know that I know they're out there, but like I've said, it's just not like there's a lot of sets. So if you Googled Amazon, if you went to Amazon and tried to buy it, for example, you're just not going to get it. You have to look around and try to find it. But you can get it. In fact, you can get stuff like this. Typical, oh, in fact, let me put it this way. You can get all six volumes of Ralph, all three volumes of Ebenezer for free on the Internet in PDF form, in digital form. I mean, they're the scanned copies, you know, but nevertheless, you can get them if you look. And plus... Both have diaries that have been reprinted, so you can get the diary of both Ebenezer and Ralph for free again if you just uh, search long enough on the Internet. But those are hard to read sometimes because they're photoed, uh, scanned, and stuff like that. But they're better than nothing. But nevertheless, um, because they have been reprinted relatively recent, recently and they are out there, that's been a real boon and blessing. So I think it's safe to say that in some sense, the Erskines have made a comeback. And for that, I'm very thankful. By the way, let me just say this quickly, too. You can get a select sermons of both Ebenezer. I think it's one volume by Ebenezer and two by Ralph from Chap, um, not Chapel Library, but uh, Gospel Missions. If you look, uh, Gospel Missions is a Baptist uh, publication that publishes books cheaply. And they're, they're paperback, and they're, they're not the best quality, but they're very cheap. And you can get a two-volume select sermon set by Ralph for, I don't know what it is. I didn't check, but probably 20 bucks or so. And that, that has all of his most famous sermons in it. And you can get a single volume of Ebenezer if you look, again, at Gospel Missions. Now, the only thing about Gospel Missions, I should have brought you uh, one of that, those volumes to show you. They tend to be what we call high Calvinists or even... I hate the word hyper-Calvinist because it's kind of a mean phrase, but they are that. <clears throat> and so when you look into uh, w- like one of those volumes of Ralph, for example, when Ralph is getting towards the end of the sermon and he's opening up the free offer of the gospel, you'll get a footnote at the bottom say, we, we cut out all of his exhortations to sinners because they sound Arminian. And yet they printed, they printed his sermons because they're so good, but they just cut off the last couple pages when he's exhorting sinners. So what I did in reference to that, I took one of those sermons by Gospel Missions, um, and, 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 I, and, and they cut off a couple, three pages at the end and put a footnote. So I went to one of the volumes, one of the six volumes uh, here. I have an old set that's been rebound, so you can see it's an older one, but with nice new binding. And I looked at the sermon, and there was like four pages of him exhorting sinners that they cut off. I'm actually going to quote from that section here later to show you um, how and why I love the Erskines. And it's largely, not exclusively, but largely because of that. They're so free in preaching Christ. And it's unfortunate that the Gospel Mission brethren um, take issue with that and, and have edited the sermons. But nevertheless, those men are good over there. Uh, you, you, you know, it's kind of a, 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 a pop and mom type thing, you know, when you call over there to a gospel missions, I think it's in Montana, and you call there to order something, the, the gentleman, he sounds like he's about 110, and he answers the phone like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> is this gospel missions publishing? Uh, yeah, how can I help you? It's like, oh boy. 
but I got a, a ton of books from them. So they're really a wonderful organization, and I highly recommend them. Now, Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine. We want to start with a uh, quotation from Beaky. Ebenezer Erskine and his younger brother, Ralph, were great 18th century Scottish preachers. God used them to bring hundreds of people to conversion and thousands more to spiritual maturity through their lives, ministries, sermons, and writings. Again, keep in mind, they ministered right in the middle of what we call the First Great Awakening. So the awakening that started under the ministry of Whitfield and then eventually Wesley, and it came over to America, largely through Whitfield. And of course, Edwards was one of the most famous American proponents or figures in that awakening. It also found its way into Wales and of course, Scotland. And there was a number of people that were used of God mightily in the 30s and 40s in Scotland and two of them were the Erskine brothers. But the thing about the Erskine brothers, which I like, which was similar to Edwards back in America, they didn't do much preaching outside of their church. It just was a, a the, the church swolled. It, it grew during the awakening and it was blessed by God and thousands of people they were preaching to. Sometimes we'll see the Erskines had to preach outside their church building because there was just too many people and they had to preach in the fields. But they, they were local men who gave themselves to a church. Unlike Whitfield, frankly, as we'll see. As much as I love Whitfield, that's one of the bad things about him. Well, we're going to see something today about him, too, in his relationship to the Erskine brothers. All right? Now, I'm putting them together. You can see their personal lives. We'll try to go through that quickly. Pastorates, we'll try to move through that quickly. And then we'll give the last section to their preaching, beginning at page 284. Their personal lives. Ebenezer Erskine was born... In Drybrook, Scotland in 1680, five years later, his brother, Ralph, was born in Monolaws near Cornhill, Northumberland, the northernmost country, uh, county of England. So just remember your geography. England is just beneath Scotland. And so the one was born up in Scotland and the other one just down inside of England. Their father, Henry, was a well-known Puritan minister. I think you remember last week I mentioned that it was under his ministry that Boston was converted. And he had been forced to vacate his home and pastorate in Cornhill in 1662 by the Act of Uniformity. Their mother was Margaret, Henry's second wife. Now, on, for whatever reason, we're going to see a whole lot of Margarets. Uh, and this is the first one, their mother. In 1690, Henry accepted a call to the parish of Chernside near Berwick in southeastern Scotland, where he ministered until his death in 1696 at the age of 72. Ralph was converted at a young age. Now we want to turn to Ralph. According to notebooks, even though he was the younger of the two, then we'll come to his older brother, Ebenezer. According to notebooks he kept, Ralph believed the Lord began his saving work within him when he was age 11 and his father died. He said, Lord, put thy fear in my heart, the young boy wrote. Let my thoughts be holy and let me do for thy glory all that I do. Bless me in my lawful work. Give a good judgment and memory, a belief in Jesus Christ, and an answer token of thy love. He entered Edinburgh University at the age of 15 to study theology after earning a master's degree in theology in 1704, 
Ralph worked for five years as a private chaplain for his relative, Colonel John Erskine. He was ordained to the ministry in 1711 and assumed the parish at Dunfermline. Uh, Dunfermline. Ralph was ordained to the second charge in Dunfermline, 1711, and promoted to the first charge in 1716. Okay, so... Second charge basically means he was the second minister. There was an older one there. Sometimes we refer to them as associate ministers today, but he was just the second minister. And then when that one died, he became the first minister. After he began his pastoral labors, Ralph fell prey to doubts about his calling as a Christian and minister. Boston's work on the covenant of grace finally brought him relief. After reading Boston, Erskine was able to plead the promises of God and regain peace of heart. So just think about how God providentially works this out. He uses the daddy as an instrument to convert Thomas Boston, and then he uses Thomas Boston as an instrument to help one of the Erskine sons. Ralph Erskine married, here's another Margaret, on July 15, 1714, three years after his ordination. She died 16 years later, having bore him 10 children, five of which died in infancy. He remarried two years later to another Margaret, who bore him four additional children, three of which also died young. This is from his diary as he's widowed with children looking for a second wife. Having read that word, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths, I now acknowledge that a prudent wife was from him, and that the qualifying of a wife for me was from him. I acknowledge him as a promising God, to whom I looked for the blessing and sought her as a blessing to me and to my children. I looked upon them not as my children, but the children of God, his concern. I was made to seek that the Lord, who had taken away their mother and left them orphans, would provide a mother for them and make my bride a loving, kindly mother to them. Here, with all my heart melting and my eyes dissolved in tears, I was made to seek that the Lord would create love in her heart first to God, and then in him, to me, and to the children. Now we go to Ebenezer. He studied philosophy in the classics at Edinburgh also, then earned, well, before, and then earned a master's degree in theology in 1697. He served as tutor and chaplain to the God-fearing family of the Earl of Roths until he was licensed in 1703 by the presbytery of Kirk Caldy and ordained to Portmoak, near Kinross, where he would minister for the next eight, uh, 28 years. Now, he's going to take another charge, another church for another 23 or something like that. But the first church, he was there 28 years. Though ordained to the ministry, it appears he was yet unconverted. He was either unconverted or he just didn't have any assurance that he was, that he was a Christian. One, one of the two. After a few years of spiritual struggle, he finally began to experience what he called the true grace of God. In the summer of 1708, he wrote in his diary that he finally, quote, got his head out of time into eternity. On August 26, he said that God had brought my heart to give a consent to him and that he was now sure that God could never, quote, deny his own covenant with him. So it seems like from his own testimony that he was probably unconverted previously. His memory, this is what happens after this. His memory was quickened and flooded by his heart, and his constrained manner changed into ease and vigor. He had the external advantages of a public speaker in his appearance and voice, 
and native dignity of bearing, but the new power of his preaching lay in the conviction he had gained of evangelical truth and in the central place he gave it in his message. Erskine's encounter with God transformed his life and ministry. Thousands of people flocked to hear him coming from as far as 60 miles, particularly during times of communion. Hundreds of people were converted to Christ. Many members of this congregation began to take notes of his sermons. Erskine sometimes addressed the note takers publicly as his scribes. And, and that's something too you'll find when you read the Erskines as Boston. They were exceedingly organized in their sermons. Very easy to take notes. I mean, typical Puritan style preaching. They exegete the text, they get a doctrine, and from the doctrine they get various observations or propositions. And each of the propositions, maybe they'll get five from, from a doctrine, which is derived from a text. They open it up at length with subheads, sub-subs, and sub-sub-subs. Six months after his ordination at Portmoke, he married Allison. <clears throat> she was a young woman of more than extraordinary talents and of undoubted piety and had been trained long in the school of temptation and spiritual conflict, so much so that at times she had been plunged into almost uncontrollable despondency. Nearly half a century after, when his diary was brought to light, traces of his wife's influence were discovered throughout all his uh, career of usefulness in a ministry most exemplary and successful. Miss Erskine, this is uh, Ebenezer, again, the older of the two, from time to time was visited with successive and severe personal and domestic trials. The year 1713 was one of sorrow upon sorrow. Within the short span of a few months, three of his children, Ralph, age two, Henry nine, Alexander five, were taken from him by death. I mean, who can imagine losing three relatively young ones just so quickly together like that? A year later, a fourth child died, Isabel, and then in August of 1720, his wife, his first wife died. Ebenezer married again three years later to Mary Webster, who bore him three additional children, all who died young. On the 15th of March, 1751, he lost his second wife and his dear brother, Ralph, the year following. So he, uh, you can see that Ralph dies before Ebenezer, even though he was the younger. When the news of his brother's death reached him, he said with emotion, and is Ralph gone? He has twice got the start of me. He was first in Christ, and now he's first in glory. In a letter to a friend about the same time, he wrote, Many of God's billows are going over me, yet still I hope the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song shall be with me in the night. As his health began to fail, he was unable to fulfill his duties. His last sermon was literally preached from his bed to a company assembled in his room. His text, this God is God forever and ever. He will be our God even unto death. He was buried by his own desire in the middle of his meeting house, where a large stone with a Latin inscription recording the date of his death, age, and periods of ministry marks the spot. So it's not like there was a great big stone standing up. They obviously put him beneath the floor, and they just put a stone to mark the spot. I find that to be, that was not uncommon, was it? For ministers to be buried inside the meeting house. So just keep that in mind. I personally wouldn't mind having a little stone right here. He was, uh, I read that, uh, 
In consequence of a new church having been built behind the old, his grave is now in the open space in front with a monument erected to his memory. All right, now they're pastors. Ebenezer, pastor two churches, Port Moak, you see the dates there, and Sterling. After Ebenezer labored at Port Moak, with great pleasure and success for many years, it seemed good to an all-wise providence to transfer him to a wider and more noticeable sphere. In the new and important sphere of ministerial exertion, he, which he now occupied, he did not disappoint the high expectations formed by the inhabitants of Sterling. In performing the public and private duties of his office, he maintained the same zeal and diligence which he had discovered back at Port uh, Moak. His administrations were eminently popular and useful. Ralph would serve the Dumfermline congregation for more than 40 years until his death in 52. God mightily blessed the work. Within two years of his ordination, the Spirit was working so powerfully through his preaching and, uh, uh, that worshipers filled the church and churchyard. A previously dead church came alive. All three churches, pastored by the Erskine brothers, prospered greatly in the influence uh, of both spread beyond their local parishes. This influence and popularity resulted in many trials, two of which we want to quickly examine. First, their trial, their controversy with the Church of Scotland, and then Mr. Whitfield. First, their controversy with the Church of Scotland. This, if you remember, began back in, the seven, in 1717 with the Merrill controversy, and it came to a head in the early 30s with their departure from the Church of Scotland. The 1731 Assembly, dealing with an overture, quote, concerning the method of planning vacant churches, legalized the appointment of ministers by patrons rather than by the vote of church members. Both the, uh, of the Erskines spoke out against the proposal, arguing strenuously for the right of the people to choose their ministers. This led the assembly to suspend Ebenezer and three other ministers from their parishes. In December of 1733, the four ministers met to form the associate presbytery, giving birth to the Scottish succession church. Ralph joined his brother a little later, 1737, and on May 12, 1740, both of the Erskines and their colleagues were deposed by the General Assembly. His delay, that is, Ralph's, arose from the hope of seeing a better spirit and some attempt at reformation in the church. But disappointment in this, he threw in his lot with, uh, with his succeeding brethren, that is, his brother and the others. Most of Ralph Erskine's congregation left the established church with him. A new building seating 2,000 was completed in 1741. These guys were rock stars. In a, in, in, can you use that? I guess you can't really use that in a positive sense. <laughs> they, they, they definitely were well-beloved ministers in Scotland and elsewhere. And they both had large congregations. Now keep in mind, we're in the middle of the second or uh, the first great awakening. So God is uniquely working in, in all of the British Isles, especially. Um, but that doesn't mean, it, even irrespective of the age they ministered, that these were faithful men that God blessed. And that's just a good way to put it. Unlike Ralph, Ebenezer was immediately shut out of his church after he was deposed. Instead of letting his congregation break down the doors, Erskine began preaching outdoors. 
His congregation grew rapidly in the ensuing months. The Erskines became busier and busier as they ministered to their own large churches and a variety of other parishes throughout Scotland. The succession great caused uh, great uh, the succession caused great dramatically. I think it grew uh, greatly grew maybe. And uh, <clears throat> either way, that sentence I think I missed a word. They promoted the marrow theology. Eventually, a meeting house was constructed for the church at Sterling. With all due speed, they constructed for him a meeting house which was numerously attended, not only by the inhabitants of Sterling, but by serious Christians from surrounding towns and villages to the distance of more than 10 miles, in which he continued to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ with delight and success while life and health were spared. So they're kicked out of the Church of Scotland. They start their own uh, presbytery. And uh, because their church buildings belonged to the previous mother denomination, they had to leave them and construct meeting houses. And that's what they did. Now, their controversy with George Whitfield, as early as 1739, uh, Ralph Erskine and George Whitfield began to, uh, to course began to correspondence through letters. Began to correspond maybe through letters. Ralph proposed that Whitfield visit Scotland and advised him how to proceed with ministry there. Okay, so I just love that. He writes him and says, come visit us and I'm going to tell you what to do when you get here. He said it would be best to join with the associate brethren. Again, that's their newly formed presbytery. To do otherwise would unduly comfort the succeeder's opponents, successor, successor's opponents. That's how you say that? Succeeders, yeah. It just sounded funny. I thought it was like a tree or something. That's a cedar. Whitfield relied that he could not do that, replied that he could not do that, sorry, for he was coming as a visiting preacher to any who would hear him regardless of denominational affiliation. Okay, so we're going to see here that the Erskines are kind of portrayed most negatively, but there's another side to the coin here. I'll, I'll mention that. I don't know that I put it in the notes per se. Ralph wrote, come if possible, dear Whitfield, come. There's no face on earth I would desire more earnestly to see. Yet I would desire it only in a way that I think would tend most to the advancing of our Lord's kingdom and the Reformation work among our hands. Such is the situation among us that unless you come with a design to meet and abide with us of the associate presbytery, I would dread the consequences of your coming, let it should seem equally to continuance our persecutors. On July 30 of 41, Whitfield arrived and the next day he preached for Ralph. The following week, Whitfield met with the associate presbytery at uh, uh, Ralph's church building. Now, this uh, next paragraph is uh, Whitfield's take of that meeting. So just keep in mind, it's Whitfield's take on the meeting. He said, I met with the associate presbytery who asked me to preach only for them till I had further light on church government. Mind you, he's Anglican. So the, the Erskines, hey, we need to help you out a little bit on your church polity. I, I asked why only for them? Mr. Ralph said, they were the Lord's people. I then asked whether there were 
no other Lord's people but themselves. And supposing all others were the devil's people, they certainly had more need to be preached to, and therefore I was more and more determined to go out into the highways and hedges. And that if the Pope himself would lend me his pulpit, I would gladly proclaim the righteousness of Christ therein. The consequence of all this was an open breach. I retired, I wept, I prayed, and after preaching in the field, sat down and dined with them, and then took a final leave, and then he went and preached for the Church of Scotland. And that, of course, was the reason why there was the breach. Okay, so now again, if you read Beakey's uh, take on it in his uh, in the book that I've been quoting from, Puritan Reformed Spirituality, he says that they mended ways at the end of their ministry and they became friends. But there was a rift there initially over the issue of to whom should he preach or fellowship with. You can see the Erskines is dilemma in a way. They broke away from the Church of Scotland, and for him to come and preach for them and preach for them would give the appearance that, there, that there's no real major difference. It's possible that the Erskines were a little bit sectarian in their thinking, but I don't really look at them as negative as much as they just were very convinced of their views and their positions, and that is what it is. All right, now we want to close our time with the preaching, but at this point I'll leave it open for any comments. Were there any other issues besides the uh, appointment of ministers by the laity or by Athens with the Church of Scotland? Or is that yeah, there was other things, Mike. Uh, there was another big thing, I, and I didn't mention it. I can't even remember exactly what it was to sufficiently uh, summarize it. They were forcing the ministers to do something that they were not for. I can't remember. They had to sign some type of document and they were unwilling to do it. And then, of course, it started back with all of the differences in relation to the mayor. And then that kind of just bred into, uh, uh, evolved into. Um, and then, I mean, you can see Ralph stayed, how, what was it, five, at least five years longer than Ebenezer in the uh, established church. So I don't know that you could say Ralph is like a hyper sectarian. If anything, it sounded like he was rather Catholic, little C, and generous in his disposition. But nevertheless, they did eventually believe it was time to leave. Yeah. Also, let me just say this, too. I wish I would have uh, brought that book by Beaky because he gives the history of that denomination that they started. It's not really a denomination as much as a presbytery. But that presbytery that they started, the associate presbytery, it evolved. And it's still in existence today in some form. And there was or there is, I think, a church. I can't remember the name of the denomination it's now become or the, the title they use, but they trace themselves back to the Erskines. And uh, there was one in Grand Rapids, I know, because they used to, they didn't have a church building. And I think they still meet in Puritan Seminary and use their chapel as a church building. But nevertheless, so they're still, they're still going this little denomination of sorts, just under a different name. Tony and then Josh. Yeah. I mean, sort of like how we talk today about certain pastors going to see other pastors church. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. No, it, it, I, that's the Erskine's perspective. 
But keep in mind that the Church of Scotland, while it differed from the Erskines sufficiently that they booted the Erskines out, there were a lot of good men still in the Church of Scotland. Yeah, so, you know, he's there. That's one good thing and bad thing about Whitfield. The good thing was that he would preach anywhere. and He wasn't sectarian. He didn't care. He preached for the Baptists, the Anglicans, and the Presbyterians. And that's the bad thing, too, because... He, he wasn't as local church base uh, driven as maybe he should have been. And that we're going to see when we get to him in the second awakening. That's one of the fall, negative fallouts of the first awakening was that it wasn't a really local church base thing. And thus it did create, in some cases, this mindset that you can just be a Christian and not go to church. Um, there's other some negative things, too, that came as a result of first awakening, but we'll wait till we get there. Josh? She was a, she was a, about 150 years before. Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, she's by this point, she's, she's dead and, and passed on, but unfortunately her memory probably continued in these places. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's go to the preaching. Uh, the preaching and writing of the Erskines affected tens of thousands of people in Scotland for over a century. The preaching gave direction to the succession movement. It uh, assimilated uh, and passed on the essence of marrow theology to subsequent generations. Ebenezer Erskine's whole works, first printed in Edinburgh in 1761, was reprinted six more times in Scotland. Ralph Erskine's writings, first published in 1764, were reprinted four times in Scotland. While there may be subtle differences between the sermons, sorry there, there, there's the wrong there, there, may be uh, subtle differences between the sermons of Ebenezer and Ralph, they are more alike than different. In a sense, Beaky said, the sermons of Ebenezer and Ralph Erskine could have been written by the same hand. The brothers differed, of course, Ebenezer's gifts were not as striking as Ralph's, this of course is Beaky's opinion, but Ebenezer had a calm, sure strength that made him a better leader. Ralph was more self-effacing, more devout, and more experiential than his brother. Nevertheless, the substance and spirit of their sermons are so similar and remain so throughout their careers that examining them together does no disservice to either, and that's what we're going to do. I mean, for me personally, if I read a, a Ralph's, uh, sermon and then an Ebenezer sermon, I can't really tell them apart. They're, uh, they're just so similar in their style because, again, they all preach that way, but particularly just in the content. They, I mean, you could really mix them up, and I don't know that you could, if you didn't know better and you didn't know which author, which of the, of the Erskines preached the sermon and you read it, I think you'd be hard-pressed to know which of the two wrote it or preached it. All right, but then let me summarize. So you have what? Six, nine volumes of sermons. Six for Ralph, three for Ebenezer. And so what do you say to that? Well, let's just try to give it uh, our best shot and suggest in broad summary terms and categories. First of all, it, that is their preaching, was God exalting. The Erskines possessed an exalted and orthodox view of God. In a lengthy sermon preached after the administration of the Lord's Supper, 
Now, that's a lengthy sermon. Probably three-hour sermon. Now, you have to keep in mind, they only had the sacrament once a year. So they extended it for a whole week celebration. And there was numbers of sermons all day long. And these sermons were very long. I mean, hours long sermons. Uh, but in a very lengthy one preached on September 29, 1723, entitled The Harmony of the Divine Attributes Displayed in the Redemption and Salvation of Sinners by Jesus Christ, from Psalm 8510, Mercy and Truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Ralph Erskine, this is probably one of his most famous sermons, said of God's attributes. He starts off the sermon by speaking as if these four attributes are people and they've all come to an assembly together and they are harmonious in their, in their activity. But he personalizes these attributes. It's really, it's, it's really amazing, these guys' preaching gifts and abilities. Uh, he said of God's attributes, the divine essence is undivided. Now, mind you, brethren, this is a regular sermon preached at the, uh, at, the say, uh, say, um, at the supper, you have a, 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 a thousand, maybe 1,200 people there, largely farmers and regular average Christian people. This isn't a lecture given to theologians or to, at some seminary or some conference, like at the Shepherds Conference. And watch how high and precise his theology the divine essence is undivided. And as there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one, so the attributes of God, however manifold to our apprehension, yet there is no division among them. They are all one. And their conspiring together in Christ for our redemption is called the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold perfections of God meet together in one, with one consent and with one heart. Behold mercy and justice. In one another's arms. And so close is the embracement that they are just one. For the Erskines, each attribute of God is God himself. That's not for the Erskines. That's for Christianity for 2,000 years. The attribute, each attribute of God is God himself. In a sermon preached on July 17, 1726, entitled God in Christ and God of love, Ebenezer said, All I shall say of it by way of an explication is only to tell you that God is one simple and uncompounded being, and the divine attributes and perfections are all one in him. His wisdom is nothing else but the infinitely wise God. His power is nothing else but the omnipotent and almighty God. His holiness is nothing else but the infinite holy God. His justice is the just and righteous God. So here, remember his text is, God is love. Love denotes the loving God or a God love. He then described three aspects of God's love. Just again, classic, reformed, uh, scholastic, patristic, apostolic doctrine. He says it's a love, three aspects, three kinds of love, he calls it. It's a love of benevolence, beneficence, and complacency. With respect to the latter, he said, there is a love. The first two, by the way, are sometimes just boiled together or, or put together, lumped together. Benevolence, if you, if you distinguish a love of benevolence from beneficence, the one is desire, the other one is action. 
but sometimes you'll just get it, benevolence and complacency. Now, with respect to the latter, he said, there's a love of complacency or delight and satisfaction, which is peculiar only to believers, whereas the others are experienced by, non, by the non-elect. Who, because of the excellency of his loving kindness, do put your trust under the shadow of his wings. O oh, believer, the Lord loves thee. A God of love loves thee. See, he's given you high, great, orthodox doctrine and theology, and now he's coming home to the heart. Not only with a love of benevolence and beneficence, as he does others in some respects, but he loves thee with a complacent love. That is a love of satisfaction and delight. So as to take pleasure in thee. Now the complacent love of God, I, I skip ahead in the sermon, to his people is variously expressed in scripture. As one is love is said to be a pastoral love or the love a shepherd hath for his flock. Two is love is a friendly love. Ye are my friends, says he, if ye do whatever I command you. Three, his complacence in them sometimes runs out into a conjugal love. Thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Four, it sometimes, and again, these are heads of bigger points. It sometimes runs out into a paternal love. I'll be to them a father, and they shall to be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. But why do I stand on this? In one word, his love is the love of a God. His love cannot be expressed by any similitude, for God is love. He is, as it were, all one flame of love to the believer. Love is in him in its perfection, and perfect love casts out hatred. His love is just the very center of love. And whatsoever sparks of love are to be found in any of our hearts, they are all kindled at this fire. As all the waters that are in the rivers come originally from the sea, and we turn back to it again. So any drop of love that is to be found in any of our hearts, it is just a release of his love. Returning back again into its proper center from whence it came. You can just skim through the titles of the sermons, brethren, and they just preached God. The triune God. They had a big God because the Bible presents to us a big and grand God. But secondly, it was promise-promoting. The Erskines, uh, Beaky said, are best known for sermons that, in keeping with the Scottish tradition, focus on the promises of God. The Scots Confession of 1560 spoke of an assured faith in the promises of God. What is the gospel but a word of promise, Ebenezer Erskine asked. Take away the promise out of the Bible, wrote Ralph, and you take away the gospel. For the gospel and the promise is one and the same thing. For the Erskines, God's promises cover eternity past, eternity future, and are all filled in Christ. Thus, their preaching was thoroughly Christ-centered. For example, Ebenezer said, All prophecies, promises, histories, and doctrines of the word point us to him, as the needle to the sailor's compass points to the pole star. Our preaching and your hearing is in vain unless we bring you to the knowledge of Christ and an acquaintance with him. All the lines of religion meet in him as their center. In 1726, Ralph preached a series of seven sermons entitled The Pregnant Promise with Her Issue or The Children of Promise Brought Forth and Described from Galatians 4. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. In the seventh and final sermon, towards the end, he said, consider the excellency of the promises. The apostle says, 
they are exceeding great and precious promises. Some things may be great and not and yet not precious, but the promises are both great and precious. And not only so, but exceeding great and exceeding precious. You may consider the excellency of the promises in these following respects. Namely, the promises are excellent and precious in respect of their author, which is God. Again, I'm giving you the heads. The promises are excellent and precious in respect of their object or the person to whom they're made. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator and redeemer, not to the elect immediately, but to Christ for them. Three, they are excellent and precious in respect of their price. We used to value things according to the price they cost us. Now the price of the promise was the blood of the Son of God. For they are excellent and precious in regard of the reality of them. The promises are not vain toys or empty notions. Nay, all the promises are so many pardons, so many blessings, so many bounties, so many substances of the greatest reality that can be imagined. Fifth, the promises are excellent and precious in regard of their certainty and immutability. Riches have wings and flee away. Honors have wings and flee away. But God may as soon cease to be God as not to be true to his word and sure in his promise. And sixthly, the promises are excellent, precious, in regard of their fullness. Now he, I give, him, I give you a little bit more of this point in this larger quotation. The promise contains salvation from sin, from the guilt of sin, from the filth of sin, from the power of sin, from the sting of sin, from the stain of sin, from the fruit of sin, from the fountain of sin, and from the very being of sin at last. Here are promises of salvation from wrath, from the law, from justice, from death, from hell, from the world, and from the devil and unreasonable men. Salvation from troubles and reproaches and fears and doubts and faintings. Salvation from desertion and despondency, from wants and weakness, from wrongs and injuries done to your name or otherwise. Salvation from all woes and weariness. Salvation from backsliding and apostasy. Salvation from plagues and all imperfections. Innumerable positive salvations of mercy. Pardoning mercy, sin-subduing mercy, healing mercy, conquering mercy, comforting mercy, upholding mercy, grace-increasing mercy, and perfecting mercy, sanctifying mercy to sanctify all providences, all crosses, all relations, defending mercy, strengthening mercy, helping mercy, following mercy, lightening, enlivening, enlarging mercy, mercy for supplying your wants, dispelling your fears, covering your infirmities, hearing all your prayers, ordering all things for your good and salvation to everlasting life, glory, and immortality. In other words, there's a promise for everything. He goes on to say he could keep going for all eternity and list out all of the promises and never run dry. And then finally, it was a Christ offering preaching or ministry. Like the reformers, the Erskines advocated for the free offer of the gospel. The gospel was extended to everyone without condition or reserve. They protested against the kind of extreme Calvinism that offered the gospel only to the elect. That goes back to the marrow controversy. Remember, the, the, the largely speaking, the Church of England or of Scotland had come to the conclusion that because only the elect will be saved, then only the gospel is for the elect, and thus you have to prove that you're elect before you get the gospel. Remember, they were putting the cart before the horse. They believed that such a limited offer, that is the Merrill men, in particular of the Erskine brothers, displaced the heart of the gospel message. In a sermon on Zechariah 13 and 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man 
that is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts, entitled, The Sword of Justice Awakened Against God's Fellow. After providing several reasons, the Messiah had to be both God and man. So, again, high, beautiful, precise theology. I wish I could have given you those heads. Uh, I brought the volume in which that sermon's found. But uh, he gives four, five, or six reasons he had to be man and reasons he had to be God. He then concluded, Hence we may see what is the great duty of all who hear this gospel, namely, to embrace the man that is God's fellow, to flock into his shepherd, this shepherd, and to and come to him as a sacrifice and propitiation in his blood, in whom the sword of divine justice has got satisfaction. Okay, so now this is where he's turning at the end of the sermon to exhort the sinner. It's this section that's omitted in the gospel missions edition. They end with him giving the doctrinal uh, justification for his humanity and divinity. He says, let me then exhort you in the name of the Lord to this duty before I close. Is it so that the sword of the Lord of hosts is bathed in the blood of the shepherd, the man that is God's fellow? Then, as you would not fall a sacrifice to this sword of God's wrath forever, all close with the man that is God's fellow. Or uh, as he has fell a sacrifice to this sword in your room. Have you no apprehensions of the wrath of God and of your dreadful condition by nature, wherein you are lying bound to be a sacrifice to the wrath of God, the Lord's hand being stretched out to lay on the stroke, and the wrath of God abiding on you, liable to the law of sentence, which is the curse of God and the vengeance of his awakened sword, until once you get the man that is God's fellow put in your room. All that the gospel aims at is this, that you should seek to change rooms with Christ. Guilty sinners, here is a way to get your debt paid, your judge pleased, justice satisfied, God atoned, sin expiated, and everlasting peace and reconciliation between God and you made up. The sword of the Lord of hosts is hanging over your head, crying vengeance, vengeance upon the guilty sinner. But behold, the man that is God's shepherd and fellow, the curse of the law, the vengeance of God, the sword of Jehovah has lighted upon him that it might not fall upon you. There is the glad news and the good tidings of the gospel. Now, let's just keep reading. Um. Is there not here a suitable object and a sufficient foundation of faith that Christ is set forth of God to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare the righteousness of God that he might be just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus? Now unworthy, wretched, guilty, filthy, bloody sinner. Will you take a worthy match? The man that is God's fellow? Will you go with this man? Will you take him in his garments, rolled in his own blood? When the sword of justice did awaken against him and smote him to death, the great God of hosts was in sad earnest 
when he gave his shepherd, the glorious fellow, the bloody blow. And now he's in earnest in his call, swearing by solemn oath as he lives that he takes no delight in the death of sinners and declaring by his drawing forth the heart blood of the man that's his fellow, that he's willing to save you upon the account of this sacrifice that his justice has got. Only welcome the news as a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation and put in for a share of the benefits of this sacrifice for it is the best and the last that you will ever hear of. And if it be slighted, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. As the eternal God is willing, so his eternal son is able and willing to save you. And if he had not been so, he would never have sustained the stroke of avenging justice in the room of sinners. Who is that good shepherd laid down, who laid down his life for the sheep? When he was smitten by the word of justice, he willingly undertook and underwent it. He longed for the bloody baptism and was straightened till it was accomplished. When he was smitten by the hands of men, he hid not his face from shame and spitting, but was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, he opened not his mouth. He never quarreled, never complained, because it was for our cause. Would he not quarrel with these that smote him? And will he quarrel uh, with a poor sinner that desires to come with him, to him, to plead the benefits of his satisfaction? No, no, he will not he will not rest in his love, or as the word signifies, be silent or dumb in his love. He will not upbraid you for your falls, nor quarrel with you for your former wickedness. He will be more content with your recovery than ever he was discontent with your apostasy. He will be more pleased with your coming to him than ever he was displeased with your sins and departures against him. Come then by the love and goodwill of God in Christ, by the blood and bowels of the Lord Jesus. I adjure thee, I entreat thee, I beg thee. And he goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And then he switches here. This is why I love Boston. And the Erskine men. Our Father, we do give thanks for men that have gone before, who in such unique ways, like Bunyan and Spurgeon and so many others, could articulate things in a way that we just can never do. Alas, Father, our tongues are tied, and these men had, a, had diverse tongues. We thank you. We thank you that though we can't speak the gospel as good as them, we can nevertheless still preach the same gospel and we can believe it. So we thank you for days of old and now we pray for your blessing upon this day. This day as we worship you and then all the days to follow our age. Oh, Father, make us to be faithful unto death even as these brothers were. And we need the spirit of Christ if this is to be the case. And so we pray unashamedly and humbly and yea, confidently that you would grant us for Jesus' sake, the Holy Spirit. Empower us, O God, and bless us, we pray. Send us forth rejoicing, having been reminded of your, of your great character, your free and full promises, and the freeness and fullness 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.